0: We on? What was that? that was, so. <laughs> hey, I'll take you out. <laughs> Thank you, darling. Aww. She actually uh, treats me like that at home, too. It's <laughs> not just for public consumption. As we were driving to church this morning, um, Shelly was really touched by what happened for that family. And uh, I was too. And she had an idea. She said, How about uh, all the profits on the sale of the book for the next two Sundays into Thanksgiving go to that family to continue supporting them? So uh, Stuart has a bunch of copies of this book, Is God Religious? If Not, Why Are We? which I will be teaching from this morning. And so whatever profits come in for the sales for the next little while are going to go to that family in Ethiopia. And um, Christmas is coming. (laughs) I don't know what to say. Christmas is coming. How about rather than a shirt or a sweater or socks, you change somebody's life? Okay? So if you buy now for Christmas, all that money, which would go to me for Christmas, is going to go to them for Christmas. So you get, you know, you're kind of sticking it to me, which is a good thing. Uh, for I know for all of you, I understand your emotions and how much respect and love you have for me, so there's a chance to kind of there 's a chance right there, and you 're doing something good for somebody. So uh, Stewart has them, and you can get them, and if you want them autographed or, or you know in some little message to somebody, you can come up afterwards and we 'll do that. Oh yes, that 's four thousand dollars per signature, <laughs> but the book. Oh, and uh, I'm preaching today from the book, so, um, and next week from the book as well. So you get an idea of what's in the book if you want to know. Okay, I've told you many times that um, sin is not the bad things that we do. Sin is an underlying desire within all of us to be independent from God. Sins, the bad things that we do, are merely the result of that positional independence. And that is what Paul refers to as the flesh. We always think that the flesh is, you know, smoking and drinking and and drugs and this and that. That's the result. But the flesh is the desire within each one of us to live independent from God. The bad things that result, we call them sins. But when you try to treat sins as changing your behavior, and you don't address the underlying problem of attitude, which is within all of us, you're treating symptoms, you're not treating causes, and you'll always be in the sin management business. You will never be in the transformation business. And we want to be a people who are being transformed, not involved in sin management. Does that make sense? So we're going to go to the heart of the matter today. Man started out... As children of God in the Garden of Eden. Now, remember, John said something really interesting last week that, oh, excuse me, no, I was on a mystery trip to Mexico. One of the pastors I was with uh, was teaching about the Garden of Eden, and he said that the word Eden actually means pleasure. So, this was God's garden of pleasure. His idea for man was pleasure. God is in the pleasure business. Every time you experience pleasure, God experiences your pleasure because he's living inside of you and he gets to live that pleasure with you. Can you imagine all the pleasure that he's experiencing? So the Garden of Eden was to be a garden of pleasure. And it would have stayed that way had man not exercised that independence from God. But they did. Through stepping away from God as Lord and Father, man became a slave to his own independence. Isn't that an interesting concept? He becomes a slave to his own independence. We become slaves to our own self-focus. Their eyes were opened. They became self-aware. And in that moment, there is a divide between God and man. The rest of the Bible is really not much more than the story of how God acts to return us to our true identity. Children of God, sons and daughters, as John's been teaching on our true identity is sons and daughters. When we become enslaved to our independence, we become something other than that. God's intent is that we go directly. Now, this is important. God's intent for us now is that we go directly from slaves to self-focus and sin to sons and daughters. Unfortunately, for most of us, this return is a three-step process. And here is where the problem begins. We start out as slaves to our self-focus. That's, what, that's the nature we're born into. It's not our true identity, but it has become second nature to us, which is really like first nature to us. We have become slaves to our own self-focus and sin. So much so that we have no... Now this is get this. This is important. We have no power in ourselves to get back to our true identity. Even if you know the truth, that my true identity is as a son or a daughter of God, <laughs> just knowing it doesn't make it so. Your independence is so much a part of you and has become second nature to you to the degree that you do not have the power to change your own identity, even if it's something that you want to do. Can you accept that? Because if you can't accept that, there's no, no need for Jesus. And there's no need for the Holy Spirit. Just get on with changing yourself. And then when you do, succeed in your own eyes in changing yourself, you get to be proud. And your independence from God is even more wicked than when you knew you were in trouble. For those of us who begin to respond to God's offer to return our true identity to us, most of us enter step two. We become religious. We desire to live as sons and daughters But we believe that this change is something we have to earn. And this makes perfect sense to us because as we approach God, we become more and more aware of his holiness. And at the same time, we become more and more aware of our sinfulness. We see his perfect law and we decide that if we can keep it well, we can become good enough to become His son or daughter. And it makes perfect sense, you see, because this religious system of self effort and merit, this meritorious religious system, is the nature of the world. Everything around you reinforces that fact. You have to struggle for it, you have to fight for it, you have to earn it. You're only as good as the last success. Your self worth is only as real as the last success. And God help you when a failure intervenes. But he won't because that's not the system you're living in. It's just the way it is. We see his perfect law. We think if I can keep it well, maybe I can become good enough to become a son or daughter. Listen, who are you now in relationship with? The law. There is now an intermediary between yourself and your true identity. And that intermediary is the law. You are now in relationship with the law. God's law is the intermediary between him and us in a world of religion, of performance. Now, this seems to work well for a while. And that's the big lie. We seem to be changing ourselves. We seem to be getting better by our self-effort. But the burden of perfection, which is our Lord, our God, is too much for even the best of us. And eventually, we realize we are slaves to law. We are under law. We are living in a legal relationship. And this is a miserable existence. Just ask Israel. Now, here's the sad thing. Many Christians never go beyond the experience of this intermediary identity. They move In their minds, from slave to self and that sin nature, into a relationship of servants and workers for God who are earning their standing, their place. And for many of us, we never go beyond that. That is not our true identity and that is not God's will for us. So how do we change our identity from merely conscientious yet failing servants to successful son or daughter? The short answer is you, you can't. You don't. You, you can't do it. I've already said that. You cannot bring about this change of identity through your own efforts or even your own choices. How does this process of transformation, return to our true nature, occur. We're going to begin to look at this process. And we're going to begin with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. If you have your Bibles, open them. And we're going to work our way through this chapter and make some really, really interesting observations. So I'm going to start reading it for you. And it's coming up on the screen. So if you don't have your Bibles, you're, you're not uh, out in the cold. Are you ready? Do a little Bible study? It's going to be a serious little inductive moment here. It's going to be special. Here we go. Now, if the ministry that brought death, what is the ministry that brought death? It's the law. Well, how does something perfect, which is a perfect reflection of God's holiness, a perfect reflection of his character, how does that bring death? Why does it bring death? Well, because it's perfect and you're not. What's the role of the law? How does the law work in our world? When was the last time a police officer pulled you over and said, I've been following you for five miles and I just got to tell you I love your driving? I am so crazy about your like that left turn. You started signaling exactly 300 feet before the intersection. And that lane change, oh, brilliant. I just, I just want to shake your hand. Thank you, sir. Keep up the good work. When was the last time that happened? Do you expect that will ever happen? No, that's not the purpose of the law. The law is there to tell you you're doing wrong. And that's what it does perfectly. Good luck to you. So if the ministry that brings death, because who wants to live that way? You can't live that way. That way brings death. If this ministry brought death, but it was engraved in letters on stone, it came with glory. You see, look, it's God's truth. It's a reflection of Him. It has to be glorious. But just because it's glorious doesn't mean it's going to do you any good. It came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry, now this is the first hint in this passage, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? The word ministry there just means the work of. So there's a work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what it's all about. There's a work of the Holy Spirit which is more powerful than the law. In fact, it doesn't bring death. It brings life, and it brings even more glory. And Paul goes on to describe how this works. So you've got to get it in your head. The Holy Spirit's doing something here, and we have to track what he's doing and figure it out so we can cooperate with it so we can have our natures changed. Are you with me? So get that. We're, we're, we're drilling in. Paul, Paul's very subtle. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you. By the end of this chapter, he doesn't tell us what this work of the Holy Spirit is. He only tells us what it does. But there's another few verses we're going to look at where he tells us what it is, and then understanding comes, and then we know how to cooperate with it. So will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And he goes on to say, if the ministry that condemns men, and that's the law, if that's glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that, quote, brings righteousness, unquote? Now, folks, this is an amazing thing because this is a work of the Holy Spirit he's describing and it brings righteousness. And yet when I was brought up as a Christian, I was told that my righteousness comes from Jesus Christ on the cross. And it does. But the work of building this righteousness into you and making it real within you and it shining out from you and it transforming you is not Jesus' work. It's the Holy Spirit's work. Interesting. This ministry, the thing that He does, actually brings righteousness to you. He is your sanctification. Another way of looking at it would be to say Jesus is your justification. The Holy Spirit is your sanctification. He makes this righteousness operational and real in you. Now, is that important, guys? Might we want a relationship with the Holy Spirit? The ministry that brings righteousness. And if you look up this word righteousness there, it means a right relationship between God and man. In other words, it's the process of restoring you to your true identity. And that will have real-time consequences in your behavior. You will become a righteous person. Why? Because you're now rightly related to the source of all goodness. For what was glorious, the law, has has no glory. We should not be focused in any way on law. It's past. It has no glory. It has no glory now. Something has happened which changes the system Israel was living under, changes the system some of us are living under into something new. That has passed away. That is not God's intent or purpose for how we relate to him. Now something called the surpassing glory has come. Thank God the new deal is here. We get a new deal. And if what was fading away, the law, came with, with glory, how much greater... Now listen, how much greater is the glory of, quote, that which lasts? You know, the glory of living under the law is your last success. And it lasts as long as your last success. And then your next failure comes and your self-worth is in jeopardy. And you're not sure of who you really are. And you're not really sure that you belong That life doesn't last. That glory doesn't last. That's as fleeting as success. But there's a surpassing glory, and it lasts. Now listen. Therefore, now here's the connection. Since we have such a hope. You see, when you're living under the law, you have no hope. When you're living in this new thing that the Spirit does, you have hope. And because of that, you are very bold. Hopeless people are not bold. They're desperate. Hopeful people are bold and they're confident. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading. Their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Look, here's life under the law. This sheet contains all of my sins from this morning. It's three pages long. This is just the bad thoughts I had since I got up and got here at church. They're the really bad stuff. You know, like just graves, you know, like, Mark, you're normal, just you're an idiot normally, but look, this, you're really an idiot here. Boy, there's no way God can forgive this. He's not, oh, this, look, this is like, this one goes on, there's yellow all over. When the old covenant is read, a veil covers their face and all they can see is themselves in the reflection of the law. It clouds their vision. They cannot see God clearly because they're in relationship with the law. And Satan hangs this before you every morning when you get up and every night when you go to bed. And every quiet moment you have, he hangs this in front of your face and says, this is your identity. Hello? And that brings death. Their minds are made dull, for to this day, to this day, there's still people living that way, folks. And you know what? Some of the time, you live that way. And for some of us, that's the only way you've been living as a Christian, which might be an oxymoron. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. You cannot go back as a Christian and attempt to leave, live legalistically without this result happening. It brings death. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. You can't do this for yourself, He has to do it for you. Thank God for God. Thank Jesus for Jesus. Thank the Holy Spirit for being the Holy Spirit. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever, thank you God, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's not taken away until you turn and look at Him. When you turn and put your focus on Him and not on the law, all of a sudden, the veil of the law is taken away. And whenever anybody turns to the Lord. The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And, and this is great, huh? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. It's freedom from two things. It's freedom from life under the law and it's freedom from your old nature and your terminal self-focus. If that is not good news, there is no good news. And we who with unveiled faces This has been removed. We do not have veiled faces. We who with unveiled faces, and the Greek for unveiled means open and transparent, there is nothing between us and Jesus' face. There is nothing between us and the face of our Heavenly Father. There is nothing between us. It has been removed. We look into His eyes. He looks into our eyes with the eyes of love, the eyes of a perfect Father. And we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. Now, here's a problem with the word reflect. The word that's used there is the Greek word reflect, but it's not the best translation. There is another sense of that word, another interpretation, another uh, translation, and it's contemplate. We who with unveiled faces contemplate and gaze at and look at Him are being transformed. Are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This passage is saying this. As we gaze at the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. It could be translated this way. As we gaze at and contemplate the wonder of Jesus, we begin to reflect more of him because we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit through the act of gazing at Jesus. In the simplest terms, beholding brings becoming. God is so cool. I mean, you're being transformed not because you're trying to be transformed, because you're in love with Jesus. And as you focus on Him and look at Him, something is taking place in the spirit between the two of you, which is actually changing you from the inside out, usually unconsciously. What a great God! Talk about lifting off the burden. I mean, talk about lifting up the burden. It's happening to you simply as you look at him and love him. You can't, you can't look at him and not love him. You can't look at him and not become like him. He is too wonderful. He is too beautiful. He is too powerful. He's too kind. He's too forgiving. He's too merciful. You cannot be in his presence and not be affected. And he doesn't, even, he doesn't do it through manipulation. It's pure influence. He leads by influence. He doesn't push people around. He doesn't order. His goodness is so powerful he can lead purely by influence. God. He's absolutely beyond description. Wonderful. From this passage, here are the characteristics of this work of the Holy Spirit. Number one, it brings righteousness. We come to truly know, maybe for the first time in our lives, that we're right with God. That we belong to Him. Number two, it brings a glory that lasts. Under the law, we all live under the burden of the question, God, what have I done for you lately? Our sense of belonging lasts only as long as our last success. But this new work of the Holy Spirit brings a glory and a change of identity that lasts. Number three, and this change brings hope. Life under law is hopeless. Perfection is impossible. You will never win. The new work of the Holy Spirit actually brings real hope. Number four, it brings boldness. Because of the new work of the Holy Spirit, we approach God without fear. Remember the story John told last Sunday of the Prince of Wales' son who interrupted a meeting to get his toy fixed? No servant could ever do that. No employee could ever do that. No one would dare to do that. Only a son or a daughter can do that. I remember reading the memoirs of, I think it was JFK's children. It was a long time ago. I might have the president wrong, but I think it was JFK's kids. And they were asking them, what was it like to grow up as the president's child with the most powerful man in the world? And the kid said, "Uh, I don't know. He was my dad. He said, I played in the Oval Office. We used to play with our toys on the floor on the carpet in the Oval Office. There's the Cuban Missile Crisis taking place. It's the closest America's come to a nuclear exchange. We're on the edge of a knife. And these kids are playing on the floor of the Oval Office. And all they understand their dad-to-be is their dad. and they're playing in the presence of the most powerful person in the world if that isn't a picture of us with God i don't know he's the most powerful being ever to exist and he is he is taking care of problem billions of problems every day and intervening through influence and through the work of his other children and We sit at his feet and we play. We're free to play. We're free to play. In his office. Angels are coming and going with trepidation, taking their orders. And we are asking him to fix our toy. And he goes, hold it, Michael. Just a sec. Fix a toy. Man, what an identity that is. That's boldness. We can approach God without fear. And number five, it brings freedom. The Holy Spirit sets us free from do more and try harder. And I was thinking, what's the analogy for this feeling of freedom that I experience with him? And I thought this, five days a week, and you won't believe this, and I know there's no physical evidence for it, but I go to the gym five days a week. I, my wife says you go to talk, and it's true i got this circle of old men at the gym, and all we do is talk, and I'm the worst one. But right now, we're talking about this book, and it's fantastic, the conversations we're getting into. And, uh, but I, I use the treadmill, and I crank it up to 15%, you know, the steepest it'll go, and then I set it to where it, it'll just about kill me. And, and they tell me this is good, and it will help, they say. And I get on there and I do this. And uh, there is this relief that takes place as I watch the seconds click down on the digital clock. And nothing happens faster than this finger to the stop button when it goes zero. There is not a millisecond after the zero. Bam! It's like, oh, God. And I get off and I'm shaking and I'm thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? You know, I'm doing this for my wife. Actually, I'm not. I'm doing this for myself. And uh, that relief that comes when you step off the treadmill at the zero is the freedom that comes when you step off the treadmill of life under law. And the minute you step off that treadmill, he's standing there with his hands open to embrace you as a son or a daughter. This passage suggests that keeping our focus on him is our part. But what is it that the Holy Spirit is doing to bring about the transformation while we are attending to Jesus? You see, while we're attending to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is busy doing something within us. And I want to know what that is because I want to know how to cooperate with it absolutely to the max. And this passage, to be honest, doesn't tell us at all what this work is that he's doing while we're gazing at Jesus. It describes a process, but it doesn't tell us the mechanism. But if we take the phrase work of the Holy Spirit or ministry of the Holy Spirit and we search the other writings of Paul, we run into a couple of phrases which really finally tell us what this transformation process is all about. And you heard it last week. Actually, the one I'm going to give you now, you haven't heard lately. But here it is. This is Jesus. This is Jesus describing the coming work of the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John 16:15. And he goes on to say to the Father while he's praying to him, Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. So what is it that the Holy Spirit will bring glory to Jesus through by taking what is from Jesus and making it real to us? What is it? It's the love of the Father for Jesus. It's the love of the Father for his first son. How perfect is the love of God for Jesus? How full is it? How complete is it? Is there anything lacking in the Father's love to Jesus? Anything at all? Is it affectionate? Is it warm? Is it adoring? Is it patient? Is it kind? Is it perfect? The Holy Spirit's job is to take what is from the Father to Jesus and stick it into your heart take what is coming from the Father to Jesus and then take it and plug it into you. And when he plugs it into you and you begin to experience the love of the Father for Jesus and you realize I'm included in this family, your belonging is perfect. And you begin to be transformed by the infinite power of love. All you know is that this feels better than anything I've ever felt before. You don't even know that at the same time as you're just getting toasted in the Father's love that there's something deep taking place within you where this love is actually changing you. It changes our identity from slave to sin, and slave to self-focus, to child of God. The eternal, perfect, limitless love of the Father for Jesus is made real to us and it transforms us From the inside out. It is so powerful. It actually changes our nature. From sinner. To son or daughter. It meets the requirements of the law. So perfectly. That we can bypass. The sad second stage of religion. And go directly. To our new identity. From servant. To son or daughter. And Paul calls it. The spirit of adoption. And if that isn't perfect, I don't know what is. Because we are made family. We are made into family. His family. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. When you're living under law, you live in a constant fear of failure and punishment. But you received the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And John says, how ridiculously absurd and lavish is the love of the father that we would be called his children. And that is who you are. That's a a direct quote from John. And that is who you are. That is your identity. And here's how it works. The Holy Spirit takes the love that the Father has for Jesus, and he makes it real to us at the deepest level possible, at the core of your identity. And this love has the power to transform our nature from being self-centered to God-centered. The change is so deep and complete that we actually become new creatures actually become new creatures. We are indwelt by the very presence of God. And I want you to understand this. It's important to note that this work of the Holy Spirit is not intellectual or theoretical. Ephesians says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit for the proof of what is to come later. What kind of deposit is it if it is not in kind Related to the promise of what's going to happen later. Right? Like if I said, okay, Gary, I'm going to buy your house. And I understand the house is like $500,000. I'm going to give you $50,000. But I promise over time to pay you the four fifty. dollars Will you accept that as a deposit? Do you know why he'll accept that as a deposit? Because it's $50,000. And what I'm going to pay him later for the house are dollars he 's getting a deposit in kind of what he 's going to expect from me later that 's a good deposit that convinces him he 's serious he 's putting fifty k up and he 's going to pay me the rest. If I came to Gary and I said, Gary, I want to buy your house uh, for five hundred thousand dollars and i 'm going to give you i'm going to give you a couple of nice shirts. will you take these shirts as, as a down payment for the $500,000, i am going to pay you later. <laughs> They're not that nice. <laughs> Listen, if the, if the deposit is not the same as the thing you're going to get later, but a little bit of it, if it's not the same in kind, it's no deposit at all, is it? So when the Holy Spirit comes along to give you a deposit of what's going to happen in heaven, it better be the same as what's going to happen in heaven. Maybe not as much but it's a present payment of a future reality. Hello? It has to convince you that the promise is real. Unless it's the same as the promise in some significant way, it's not going to convince you that the promise is real. The promise is that we are going to be sons and daughters and spend eternity with our family in heaven. And every day is going to look like thanksgiving. That's the promise. Now, what bet better? Now, what does the deposit need to do to convince you that the promise is real? It better be an experience of belonging. It better be an experience of His love. It better be an experience of Abba Father. It better be an experience of the Spirit of Adoption. If it doesn't do that within you now, it's no proof of the promise for later. Hello. So it is not a theoretical or intellectual understanding. I hate intellectual Christianity because it attempts to turn something warm and beautiful into something that is nothing more than a good idea. You are not transformed by good ideas. The deposit He's here to give you is an experience of the Father's love. And it isn't just a little bit. It's an experience of the love God has for His Son, Jesus. So you should expect something. And you should say, if I haven't had it, I need it. And you should say, God, I want it. I'm coming to you to get it. Give it to me. My spiritual director, she's dead now. She was a Catholic nun. She entered the order when she was 18 years old. She was a legalistic, bitter, nasty little person. No, I'm telling you what she told me. Now, when I knew her in her 60s, oh Lord, closest thing to God I'd ever been with. But she told me when she entered the order, she was just nasty. Crabby, legalistic, judgmental, little jerk. She said her family was glad to get rid of her. Let the church have her. And she went on being a nun like this for a couple decades. Then she got a new spiritual director, a priest. And he sat down to get to know her. And he said, Nora, when was the last time? You experienced the love of the Father. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, in a religious order, you get to boss people around. It's one of the great advantages of religious orders. Frankly, it is. And he said to her, Nora, you go into the chapel, and don't you leave the chapel. You've experienced the Father's love. That's pretty courageous. That's a confidence in that priest in the goodness of God. Because he's laying it all on the line here. Well, she went in there and she sat down. She realized she'd never experienced the love of the Father. So she just waited. And the Spirit of God came in there and overwhelmed her. She was never the same again. And she dedicated her life to that experience for everyone who came across her path. And when I I knew her, first met her, it's quite a wild story. I'll tell it in the next book. It's going to be in the next book. But uh, (laughs) I met her by accident, Holy Spirit accident. And we began to talk. And I began to talk about my life, which was a servant in God's world, an employee in his business. And she began to talk about her life. And I could tell, oh, there is a huge difference here. I said, you know, when you talk about the Lord, I said, you're on a first name basis with him, aren't you? And she said, well, of course. I said, I would give anything. I would give anything to know him like that. And she said, oh, that's easy. I said, what? She said, oh, yeah, you just need to learn to pray. I said, oh, please. I said, I've done Africa so many times. I know the name of every single country and every missionary that's there. I've prayed for this. I've prayed for that. She said, that's not prayer. That's not prayer. I mean, you need to learn to be with God. You need to, you need to know how to be with him. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, that's the problem. And we embarked on an 18-month adventure together, come into the presence of God. And she told me I had to pray an hour every day, every morning. She taught me to sit still. I almost died. It was horrible. She gave me these things to meditate and contemplate on. It didn't do me any good. About three or four months went by, and I was becoming quite discouraged. I'd been up late the night before, and... Uh, I was dog-tired, but I was doing my prayers. Doing my prayers, which is not praying at all, by the way. That's the law. But I was conscientious. So I'm sitting in my back room, never had an experience of God's love. Never. I'm sitting in the back room, and I'm composing myself, and I'm learning to be still, and I'm doing everything that she's teaching me to do, and it's just awful, and I get really angry. And I said to God, I just hate this. I just hate this. This is awful. I said, I just wish I could crawl up into your lap and curl up and go to sleep. And across the room, the other side of the room, was this massive pillow that I had made for watching movies and stuff. It was about four and a half feet by three feet stuffed with foam, like seriously comfortable. And I looked across and I saw that pillow there. And this voice in my head said, do it. And I said, what? And the voice in my head said, crawl across the floor and curl up on the pillow in God's lap. And I thought this is ridiculous. I'm a lawyer. We don't crawl. People crawl to us. We don't crawl. But I was so tired, listen, I was so tired of doing my prayers. And I was so tired of me. And I was so tired and I had a headache. And I felt miserable. And I looked at that pillow again and the thought said, go ahead, there's no one here. Because I was a proud and self-conscious person. And I thought, I just want to crawl into God's lap and go to sleep. So I crawled across the floor and I pulled out the pillow and I curled up on it and I was immediately asleep. And I woke up about 20 minutes later and I cannot describe this. There are not words for this. I woke up in the arms of God. I have never felt love like that in my life. It was overwhelming. The word f- I, I lay there on this pillow looking up at the ceiling, and all I could say was, Father, Father, Father. And and, and that's the day and the moment when my identity changed. Man, when I went back to her and I told her about that experience, glory balls from heaven. She was so excited. She said, finally, finally. And that was the beginning of everything. Folks, I didn't even know the Holy Spirit then. I was an evangelical getting tainted by Catholicism. Corrupted. Man, I didn't, the real corruption was yet to come. Speaking in tongues. I mean, good Lord. But I'll tell you what, the seminal experience of my life is that. It wasn't what came later with the power of God through the Holy Spirit for giftedness, it was identity. It was far deeper than giftedness. Giftedness merely comes out of identity. In fact, giftedness without identity is very, very dangerous. Very corrupting. It's an experience, people. It's an experience. And it's one you need. And you don't need it just once. You need it quite often. You need little installments of it, of it from time to time. Paul says be continually refilled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So can we bask in it a little bit? Can we just let them have access to our hearts here for five minutes? Okay, let's close our eyes. And Josh, why don't you come up? Bring the band. Just, just nice and soft. Maybe do Abba Father again because that's the heart of the whole deal. And um, let's just give him access, you guys. Let's just open our hearts. And let's just give him access to touch us with the spirit of adoption. Close your eyes. In fact, don't start singing until I'm done. I just had a thought what we're supposed to do. So close your eyes. We're going to do a Bible meditation. I'm going to lead you through a a little passage of Scripture. Close your eyes. Now, I want you to imagine that you're four years old. See yourself in your house.